the President of the United States of America paced the floor. He often did this when he was deep in thought. He was not thinking about the numerous events that had led to the formation of this new nation. That was in the past, and he had reflected on it enough. His mind was currently fixed on the present. He could not stop thinking about the land he had just purchased for his country. Many thought that it had been a huge mistake, but the president didn't care. He not only knew that he had doubled the size of his country overnight, but that what he had purchased was entirely unknown. As he looked out the window in the direction of this new unknown land, a firm resolve settled in his heart. Something is out there, and I will find it. The object of your mission is to explore the Missouri River and, by its course and communication with the water of the Pacific Ocean, may offer the most direct and practicable water communication across this continent. Thomas Jefferson, 1803. Virtuous Man, a podcast devoted to sharing the lives of men of history, fiction, and today, and the virtues they personify. In this season, we'll take an in-depth look at one of the most famous expeditions in American history, the Lewis and Clark Expedition. In each episode, we'll highlight key virtues exemplified by the Corps of Discovery and give a truly unique perspective of this incredible American adventure. A virtue is a behavior one conforms to in order to achieve a moral and ethically principled life through action. A virtuous man is one who is well aware of how he falls short, yet chooses not to allow his flaws to define him as he seeks to better himself. Such men show that it is possible to overcome the things that keep us from achieving our destinies. Though each man is flawed and imperfect, it is in the lives of flawed men that we see the possibility for virtue in our own lives. In this episode, we will explore the origins of the Lewis and Clark expedition, the man at the center of it, and how, without the virtues of education, will, determination, mentorship, and above all, friendship, the expedition would have never happened. Quotes from the expedition journal entries are cited throughout this episode. For listener clarity and narrative coherence, some of these quotes have been revised. Welcome to Episode 1, Jefferson's Call. On March 4, 1801, Thomas Jefferson was inaugurated as the third President of the United States. Having begun his public career at age 26, he had already accomplished more than dozens of men could ever hope to achieve in their lifetimes. He had served in every possible office a statesman could hold, authored the Declaration of Independence, founded the University of Virginia, and had established the model for how future states would form and be annexed into the Union. In addition to his immeasurable political achievements, he was also endlessly fascinated with nearly every subject under the sun. His home of Monticello was filled with gadgets and inventions. Jefferson dreamed about steam power for transportation decades ahead of his time. He possessed one of the greatest libraries in the world, from botany, literature, astronomy, mineralogy, mathematics, architecture, to medicine, 
no subject escaped Jefferson's interest. Author and historian Larry Morris. He is a fascinating character. There has been quite a bit of uh, controversy about Jefferson over the last 40 or 50 years. Jefferson's attitude toward the uh, Indians has come into question, and, and also, of course, uh, slavery has been a big issue. There are things that uh, we would object to about his life, but there's also many good things, and he did have a lot of values that we entirely agree with. Now, in terms of the uh, expedition, uh, Thomas Jefferson was no doubt the uh, leading influence. He is largely responsible for the uh, good things that came from the expedition and their accomplishments. I really appreciate uh, Thomas Jefferson's idea. It was his idea to explore the West about 20 years before it really happened. Uh, I really appreciate his influence and his uh, friendly personality. And he, he really uh, friendshiped uh, William Clark and the two of them got along very well and uh, Jefferson was instrumental in, in uh, encouraging uh, William Clark to publish the history of the expedition. So personally, I recognize uh, Jefferson's flaws as well, but I, I do really have a great res respect for him. This thirst for knowledge made Jefferson one of the most well-educated and versatile men of his time. It also made him curious about the land to the west beyond what was known to him and his nation. At the time, America was only 18 years old. Only four roads crossed over the Appalachians. Of the half a million American citizens, fewer than one out of ten lived out west. Mail sometimes took months to travel from one place to another. Nothing moved faster than the speed of a horse. Despite the many great advances in technology, in regards to commerce, America was no better than ancient Rome. Many believed that the American continent was too vast to be governed by one nation. To many, the West was simply an idea, not a place. But Jefferson saw things differently. In his mind, America was a continent, a nation that could stretch from sea to shining sea. And Jefferson, like no other person of his day, had the will and determination to make it so. Before his inauguration, he had attempted three different times to organize an exploration party to the West. He had asked a number of qualified men, among them a sailor who had once been with famed explorer James Cook, to mount an expedition, but all of these efforts had come to nothing. Jefferson was well aware that the British had a claim to the Northwest and were preparing to begin trade and exploration operations. These were realities that Jefferson could not accept. Fortunately, a series of events had begun to unfold that would not only result in the greatest land deal in history, but would be the perfect catalyst in reviving the importance of an expedition through the continent. It would become known as the Louisiana Purchase. Author and historian Ellen Woodger Americans had already started moving westward and were settling in the valleys by the Ohio and Mississippi rivers. The Mississippi at that time marked the western boundary of the United States. Beyond that was Louisiana, which encompassed 828,000 square miles between the Mississippi and the Rocky Mountains. And that territory had been owned by the Spanish ever since France ceded it to them in 1762. 
Now, the Pinckney Treaty of 1795 did a lot to resolve tensions between the U.S. and Spain, allowing the Americans both the ability to navigate freely along the Mississippi and the use of New Orleans as a trading port. But then, in 1800, the French reacquired the territory from the Spanish by a secret treaty, which the Americans didn't learn about until 1802, and they weren't the least bit happy about it. Napoleon Bonaparte had ambitions to establish French dominance in the West via sugarcane production and to use New Orleans as a port. The U.S. could live with Spain as a neighbor, but having France in control of New Orleans was a very serious threat that would have forced the Americans to depend on British protection, which they didn't want. Meanwhile, Napoleon continued to threaten war against Britain, and increasingly his attention was focusing less on the New World and more on the Old. This was due in large part to his failure to suppress an uprising in Hispaniola, which is now Haiti, as you know, led by Toussaint Louverture, and thus Napoleon's failure to gain control of Saint-Domingue, a, a valuable sugar colony. Consequently, Napoleon decided to focus on building up his forces for a new war in Europe, and specifically an invasion of Britain. And for that, of course, he needed money. So the French Minister of Foreign Affairs, Talleyrand, offered to sell the Americans not just New Orleans, but the entire Louisiana Territory. Well, needless to say, the Americans jumped at the chance, and the deal was signed in April 1803 at a price of $15 million. Despite doubling the size of his young nation overnight, the purchase was not without its critics. Some claimed that Jefferson had bought unnecessary land with non-existent money. Many believed that the Louisiana Purchase was nothing more than a vast wasteland filled with blue-eyed Welsh-speaking Indians, erupting volcanoes, prehistoric mammoths, dinosaurs, and a mountain of salt a mile wide. But the president knew how important the sale was, regardless of whether or not it was explored. Now that he had sufficient reasons to claim this new land, he began once again to assemble an expedition. He already had a leader in mind. Meriwether Lewis was born in the Blue Ridge Mountains of Virginia on August 18, 1774. His father William and mother Lucy had prospered on the frontier and had been good friends with and neighbors to Thomas Jefferson. William served in the military for most of Lewis's childhood before dying of pneumonia in 1779. Despite losing his father at such a young age, he remained extremely close to his mother all throughout his life and wrote to her as often as possible. She was a strong, resourceful, versatile, and remarkably capable woman. Georgia Governor George Gilmer went on to say later that Lewis had been given all of the, quote, energy, courage, activity, and good understanding of his admirable mother, end quote. At the time of Lewis's childhood, the West was seen as a place of adventure, while the East was the place to receive knowledge and education. As he grew, Lewis displayed a great desire for both. He developed wilderness skills from his stepfather, John Marks, and from numerous solitary excursions into nature. Jefferson remarked that Lewis's love of the wild was remarkable, noting that even at only eight years old, he habitually went out in the dead of night alone with his dogs into the forest to hunt the raccoon and opossum. In this exercise, no season or circumstance could obstruct his purpose, plunging through the winter snows and frozen streams in pursuit of his object. He was even said to have hunted barefoot in the snow, 
and became an expert trailblazer and horse rider, traits that would eventually serve him well. Upon reaching his teenage years, he managed to further his education under a variety of teachers and tutors. He received a fairly basic education for the average Virginian, but he, like his future mentor Jefferson, was always thirsty for more. Most importantly, he developed a fine writing style that would come to full fruition in his future journal entries and letters. He eventually settled into the life of a plantation owner, though he became restless and unhappy. Lewis was not a man to stay still for long, and his desire for adventure was growing unbearable. At age 20, he enlisted in the military and was dispatched with the other new recruits to quell the Whiskey Rebellion of 1794. By 1800, he had risen to the rank of captain. The life of a soldier proved to be fitting for someone as restless as Lewis. He was constantly on the move, seeing new places, meeting new people, and gaining new experiences. But it was also a life that encouraged excessive consumption of alcohol. Lewis once wrote to his mother that, We have mountains of beef and oceans of whiskey, and I feel myself able to share it with the hardiest fellow in camp. The general idea is that the army is a school of debauchery. This behavior resulted in many recruits being punished, sometimes severely, for drunkenness and bad manners. Lewis himself was court-martialed for supposedly disrespecting a senior officer by challenging him to a duel, though he was later acquitted. He was instead transferred to the chosen rifle company of sharpshooters. This company was led by a man named William Clark. William Clark was four years older than Lewis. Clark was also born in Virginia like Lewis was, but when uh, Clark was a young teenager, his family uh, migrated to Kentucky. So Clark also had the, uh, the experience of growing up largely in the wilderness. He was a uh, personable man who made friends easily, and he was very uh, concerned about duty was very high on his list of uh, things that were important to him. He joined the Army, and he did well. And by 1795, Clark, who would have turned uh, 25, was a lieutenant in a rifle company. And Lewis also joined the Army, and he, en he ended out, out west. But Lewis was... Uh, more mysterious than Clark, I think is one way you can put it. He had more contradictions involved in his personality, uh, greater flaws and greater strengths, probably, than Clark. Uh, Clark seems to be a fairly straightforward individual that you can kind of get a handle on. At any rate, as a uh, ensign, which was a rank lower than lieutenant, Lewis got involved in a conflict with the uh, superior officer and actually challenged him to a duel. The, uh, the officer above the uh, lieutenant who was having the conflict with Lewis transferred Lewis into William Clark's unit. And this was in the fall of 1795. Clark was 25 and Lewis was 21. They did become uh, close friends and they really complemented each other. You really see that on the expedition. They kind of make up for each other's uh, weaknesses, and they were only they only served together for about six months. And I I don't think they did see each other for several years. Now whether or not they corresponded, 
I don't believe we have documentary evidence of that, but that easily could have happened. In 1801, Lewis was appointed to the position of secretary to the president. It was a role Lewis eagerly accepted. Lewis lived with Jefferson in the White House for two years. In that time, they interacted on a daily basis, dining together and working closely on military and political matters. They were the only residents of the White House aside from servants, and Jefferson jokingly said that he and Lewis were like two mice in a church. As the two men grew closer in friendship, Jefferson noted that Lewis occasionally displayed a depressive and melancholy streak, claiming that he was subject to hypochondriac affections. It was a constitutional disposition in all the nearer branches of the family. While he lived with me in Washington, I observed at times sensible depressions of the mind. Despite this, their bond grew. Their deep friendship was something more like father and son than a bond between peers. Jefferson was nothing less than a father figure to Lewis in those years, teaching him, mentoring him, and shaping him into the man he would become. Jefferson saw firsthand how brilliant and intelligent Lewis truly was, and this led him to believe that Lewis was the one to lead his expedition. The primary goal of the expedition was to find the Northwest Passage, it was a fabled water route that supposedly flowed all the way through the west and to the Pacific Ocean. In the early 1800s, rivers were viewed like modern-day highways. As railroads would eventually be decades later, rivers were the keys to transportation and trade. The Northwest Passage had been a highly coveted prize since the days of Columbus, and Jefferson was determined to claim it for the United States, if he could find it. Though the expedition was commissioned primarily for future trade and commerce, the scientific nature of the journey was just as important. Jefferson's 1803 letter of instruction to Lewis ordered the expedition to record temperatures, wind and river speeds, the change of seasons and their effect on the land, any new flora, fauna, and animal species, and to obtain as many specimens of their discoveries as possible. He instructed Lewis to make records about everything the group experienced, telling him that, your observations are to be taken with great pains and accuracy, and to be entered distinctly and intelligibly for others as well as yourself. Though he did not specifically order Lewis to keep a daily journal, it was likely expected that he would be journaling at length on the expedition. Lewis spent the next months learning botany, zoology, medicine, and celestial navigation from the most prestigious scientists and doctors of the day. In January 1803, Congress granted the expedition a meager budget of $2,500, about $65,000 today. However, Jefferson found a way around this by giving Lewis a letter of credit, which he could use to obtain whatever he needed without resorting to Congress. Lewis spent the rest of the year buying an estimated $39,000 of supplies, such as emergency rations of dehydrated soup, scientific books, tools, food, drink, and whiskey. Among the many different medicines he purchased were 600 powerful laxative pills known as thunderclappers. Dr. Benjamin Rush, the nation's leading physician, told Lewis that they could be used as the cure-all for any ailment, though this would certainly prove not to be the case. Lewis briefly entertained bringing a doctor along, but decided that he was capable of the task. 
Lewis also purchased some of the most advanced weaponry of the day, such as a set of pistols with secret triggers and a rifle that fired using compressed air instead of gunpowder. In one terrifying incident, he was demonstrating the rifle and accidentally struck a woman in the head at 40 yards. Though he initially thought she was dead, he wrote of his inexpressible satisfaction when he saw that she was not seriously hurt. One of the most unique items on the shopping list was an iron frame collapsible boat that weighed only 200 pounds, which would potentially be useful in case the need arose to haul the vessel around obstacles. Lewis also devised an ingenious method of transporting ammunition. He had a plumbing shop melt the lead balls into cylindrical containers, which were then filled with gunpowder and plugged with a cork. Not only did the containers keep the powder dry, but they could be melted down into lead shot when they were empty. Lewis also purchased goods for the Indian tribes they expected to encounter. In regards to his feelings towards Indians, Jefferson once said, I believe the Indian then to be in body and mind equal to the white man. As opposed to blacks being viewed as something less than human, Indians were viewed as potential American citizens who could become valuable members of the body politic. Jefferson instructed to Lewis in his 1803 letter, In all your intercourse with the natives, treat them in the most friendly and conciliatory manner which their own conduct will admit. Much of the items Lewis bought did not have a practical use, but were more decorative in nature. Blue and white beads, handkerchiefs, paints, medals, and the like. Though Lewis referred to them as presents, he intended to use them for trade. But, like many things about the expedition, they had no idea what to expect from the Indians of the unexplored West. In Pittsburgh, Lewis spent a month supervising the construction of a river vessel designed to suit the needs of the journey. It was 55 feet long, weighed a total of 15 tons, and had 22 oars for rowing against the current. It was not only a storehouse for all the expedition items, but it also served as a floating fortress in case of Indian attacks. The bow had a swivel cannon mounted to it, and various firearms were strategically placed on deck for easy access. The construction of the keelboat delayed the beginning of the journey far longer than either Jefferson or Lewis anticipated. The boat builder was a drunk with no competition for Miles, who lacked Lewis's sense of urgency. Lewis was not shy about voicing his disdain for the man, and noted in his journal that, I have been most shamefully detained by the unpardonable negligence of my boat builder. The summer of 1803 was rapidly passing, and there was still much to do. One of the most crucial matters had also arisen, the need of a second officer. Both men seemed to know from the outset that a second officer was a necessary expenditure, for if one were to die, the other could carry on. The only issue was deciding who it was. Fortunately, Lewis immediately knew who would be the right man for the job. In one of the most famous and important letters in American history, Lewis wrote to his old military commander whom he had not seen in seven years, William Clark. From the long and uninterrupted friendship and confidence which has subsisted between us, I feel no hesitation in making to you the following communication. 
If there is anything under the circumstances in this enterprise which would induce you to participate with me in its fatigues, its dangers, and its honors, believe me, there is no man on earth with whom I should feel equal pleasure in sharing them as with you. I should be extremely happy in your company and will furnish you with every aid for your return from any point you might wish it. With sincere and affectionate regard, your friend and humble servant, Meriwether Lewis. Clark received Lewis's letter in July 1803. Lewis had made arrangements to ask another military officer if Clark declined. This was a very real possibility. Clark had retired from the military in 1796 and was interested in becoming a businessman. He also had health concerns and was involved in trying to sort out the complicated financial affairs of his famous brother George. After nervously waiting for 10 days, he received Clark's answer. Dear Lewis, this enterprise is such as I have long anticipated and am much pleased with. I will cheerfully join you and partake of the dangers, difficulties, and fatigues. This is an undertaking fraught with many difficulties, but my friend, I do assure you that no man lives with whom I would prefer to undertake such a trip as yourself. I shall be exceedingly anxious to hear from you. I join you with hand and heart. With every sincerity and friendship, William Clark. On the morning of August 31st at 7 a.m., the last nail was hammered into the boat's planking. Three hours later, Lewis had it loaded with the estimated 60,000 pounds worth of gear. For the first time since the plans were first made for the journey, Lewis was officially on the move. But before he and his faithful companion Clark could set out into uncharted lands for the pride and glory of their young nation, one more great task had to be completed. They now had to find the right crew. On his way to join Clark from Pittsburgh to Louisville, Kentucky, Lewis wrote, September 1st, 1803. We passed the Little Horse Ripple, or Riffle, with much difficulty. All hands labored in the water about two hours before we effected a passage. The next obstruction we met was with the Big Horsetail Riffle. Here we were obliged to unload all our goods and lift the empty boat over. About five o'clock, we reached the riffle called Woolery's Trap. Here, after unloading again and exerting all our force, we found it impractical to get over. I therefore employed a man with a team of oxen, with the assistance of which we at length got off. We put in and remained all night, having made only ten miles this day. This ending to the journal entry on that foggy day in September, almost 220 years ago, marked the official beginning of what would become the journals of Lewis and Clark. They are remembered today as one of America's greatest and most significant literary artifacts. Spanning nearly 200,000 words over multiple volumes, Lewis and Clark were prolific writers when it came to their journals, regardless of their surrounding circumstances. Not only did they survive every danger and trial of the voyage and provide invaluable insight into the lands west of the Mississippi, but they also give us a glimpse into the personalities, minds, and hearts of the most famous duo in American history. 
probably the key thing that sets the expedition's journals apart from those of other explorers is that it wasn't just the leaders who recorded their activities and observations. It was highly unusual, but the men were also encouraged to keep journals, and we know of six who did so. Sergeants Charles Floyd, Patrick Gass, John Ordway, and Nathaniel Pryor, and privates Robert Fraser and Joseph Whitehouse. Uh, now, historians have speculated that Alexander Hamilton Willard also kept a journal, but it has never been located. Pryor's and Fraser's journals are missing, but all the others have been published. Lewis, of course, was the most educated of all the men on the expedition, and his journal entries are well-written and often quite lengthy. Clark was much more blunt in his writing, and he was prone to numerous spelling and phrasing errors simply because, well, he wasn't an educated man, and his errors are legendary. Somebody made a list of how many different ways Clark uh, spelled mosquitoes, and it was pretty humorous to see all the variations. But it's good to know that uh, firm uh, spelling rules were kind of in flux at the time. They weren't really as strict as we had when we were growing up and, uh, and our English teachers were correcting us, you know. I don't think they had the same latitude that Clark indicated, but uh, it wasn't unusual. Uh, I've done quite, a, I've looked at quite a few documents from this area, era, and it's uh, very common for uh, a person writing a letter to spell the same word two different ways in the same letter. They didn't have the same uh, attitude towards spelling that we do. And even they would spell their name differently at different times. Clark wasn't as good with whatever grammar rules were in effect at that point as Lewis was. So you do see a difference between the two of them. And I should point out that even Lewis made spelling errors. After all, there wasn't yet a dictionary of standardized American spellings. Noah Webster had yet to produce one. The journals of the sergeants and privates offer their unique perspectives of the scenery, their interactions with Indians, and the events that befell them along their journey. Now taken together, the journals probably paint the most complete and varied picture of any historic exploration. Things like spelling errors simply add to the overall fascination of the journals. After all, these men were explorers, not writers or editors. Their language was authentic and their journals form the first great American epic. Lewis spent an arduous month transporting the keelboat from Pittsburgh to Louisville. After meeting up with Clark in mid-October, they spent time ascertaining what kind of men would be most qualified to undertake such a daunting journey. Word had spread of the expedition, and many men eagerly asked to join. Lewis wrote that he was looking for some good hunters, stout, healthy, unmarried men accustomed to the woods and capable of bearing bodily fatigue in a pretty considerable degree. Clark also stated that a judicious choice of our party is of the greatest importance to the success of this vast enterprise. Both being military men, Lewis and Clark were adept at vetting new recruits. Most of the men were from the military, while others were chosen for their frontier, survival, and interpretation skills. At age 43, French-Canadian trapper Jean-Baptiste LePage was the expedition's oldest member, while Army recruit George Shannon was the youngest at age 19. Silas Goodrich was the expedition's best fisherman, and Francois Labiche and Pierre Crusat were the best rivermen. Frontiersman George Drouillard, 
with whom Lewis was especially impressed, was one of the expedition's best interpreters and hunters, and was one of the highest paid members next to the captains. Joseph Whitehouse was an expert tailor, and Private Patrick Gass was hired as a carpenter. At 33, Gass was older than many members of the expedition, and was well-liked and respected by his peers. Sergeant John Ordway had the most prior military experience, and was also highly regarded. Notably, he would be the only member who successfully recorded a daily journal entry for the entire journey. Lewis also brought along his large Newfoundland dog, Seaman, who would go down in history as one of America's most legendary canines. Clark managed to recruit nine men while he waited for Lewis, among them the notable figures John Coulter, Sergeant Charles Floyd, and the brothers Joseph and Reuben Field. Clark also enlisted his slave York, who had been in the Clark family since boyhood. Clark chose York not just because of their long relationship, but for his size, physical strength, and ability to follow orders. Though Lewis and Clark still planned to recruit more men, the key members had been gathered. They were now officially known as the Corps of Discovery. On their way to St. Louis, the captains practiced using their equipment for celestial navigation, knowing that they would have to be proficient by the end of winter. They had also encountered what would become one of the journey's greatest obstacles, the flow of the river. Though they didn't know it yet, the current would be against them all the way until they reached the Continental Divide. From the earliest days of planning, it had never been definitively decided on how many men would be needed. The difficulties involved in managing the boat under such conditions made the captains realize that they would need more men. During the winter and spring, the captains did everything they could to be further prepared. They made additions to the keelboat and purchased enough supplies to sustain the much larger group. To Lewis's dismay, Clark's commission had not given him the rank of captain, but rather lieutenant. Despite this, it had already been firmly decided between them that they would lead the expedition as equals. Lewis even referred to Clark as Captain Clark in his journals. By early March 1804, the Louisiana Territory was officially transferred to the United States. Though immigrants lured by the promise of land had already started going toward the west, the expedition was still much farther ahead of those who would follow in their footsteps. Patrick Gass wrote that, We expect to pass through a country possessed by numerous powerful and warlike nations of savages, of gigantic stature, fierce, treacherous, and cruel, and particularly hostile to white men. But the determined and resolute character of the men dispelled every emotion of fear. Though the Corps of Discovery was about to encounter an untold number of dangers, it seemed that even at this early stage, and in spite of the bored, drunken infighting, their trust and faith in one another was already forged. It was almost May, spring was drawing to an end, the boat was complete, the group was formed, spirits were high, the anticipation was growing. In a few more days, the voyage would begin. The great journey was finally underway, a journey that would have only remained an idea had it not been for the great virtues displayed by Lewis and Jefferson. Not only did Jefferson have the steadfast will to acquire the land his expedition would explore, but the determination to make the expedition happen in spite of numerous setbacks. Without his mentorship and fathering of Lewis, 
Lewis would not have been given the sense of purpose and duty of mission that would come to define his life. Lewis's passion for self-education and a desire to gain knowledge laid the groundwork on which his exceptional leadership was built. Yet the driving force of these three brilliant men was their friendship. Jefferson's friendship with Lewis and Lewis's friendship with Clark was the fire that lit the flame within them. Lewis knew he needed someone to help him see the mission through, and Clark knew that he could be that help to his dear friend. Above all else, these men were well aware that while they may have been good as individuals, they could be great when they worked together. It was the strength of these special bonds that helped launch the greatest expedition in American history. And as we will see, that strength would soon be needed. This episode of Virtuous Man was written and recorded by Scott Einig and edited by Jamie Adams. Featuring the voice talents of Larry Einig as Thomas Jefferson, Ethan Thomas as Meriwether Lewis, Jared Thomas as William Clark, and Scott Einig as Patrick Gass. Special thanks to Larry Morris, author of The Fate of the Core and In the Wake of Lewis and Clark, and Alan Woodger, author of Encyclopedia of the Lewis and Clark Expedition. Tune in next time for part two, where the Corps of Discovery encounters raging waters, Indian tribes, unknown animals, and one of the harshest winters imaginable.